So how are you all doing? <laughs> you can feel the retreat is starting to shift. And we like to give you a little opportunity to spend some time with each other and uh, begin the relational practice just to uh, see what happens in your practice as you begin that. Because our practice is in, on retreat is, is generally very solo, except for a few meetings that we have with the teachers or uh, around your yogi jobs or the kitchens or whatever. So it's good to bring this a little bit more fully into your practice, because this is what happens when we leave the retreat. We begin to have more of a social uh, life, so to speak. (laughs) So it's good, you know, just to see what happens to your mind state and how it was when you were sitting this last half hour, you know, just what you noticed in terms of your uh, before you were speaking this, you know, this morning and early afternoon and how, how your mind is now. Because the practice is always the same. You know, and that's really the message that we're hoping that each and every one of you really take away with you is that you see that the practice is always the same no matter where you are or what you're doing or how you're being. We're continually looking at the quality of our mind, the quality of our awareness, to see how, what's happening. Are we, are we getting caught in our uh, desires and our attachments and our aversions and our resistances? And are we getting wound up in the way we want things to be? When we don't get the things we want, you know, the, kind of the way that we begin to make demands on life. So we really want to begin to understand more deeply the, what the Buddha talks about, the causes and conditions that give rise to our suffering. What are those causes and conditions? We're really only interested in the suffering element, in that suffering element so that we can know really well what it means to be at the end of that suffering or put that suffering down, to know that experience, what we call the end of suffering, which is really possible for each and every one of us. And sometimes we get a taste of that. It's maybe more temporary. It's sometimes called momentary freedom, where we feel the freedom from the pain, from the dissatisfaction, from our so-called suffering, and some we feel very free in ourselves. So we can taste that freedom. We have, we have a taste of it. It's the same freedom. It just means that the, the, those conditions are uh, uh, at peace for a little bit of time. We like that. We want that. Also energizes us and gives us um, some, some energy and some faith for the practice as we taste that more and more. So tonight I want to talk about this uh, seventh factor of awakening, this equanimity, which is both our practice, but it's also the goal of the practice. So it's both the path and the goal. And we, again, can have tastes of this. It doesn't mean that we only experience equanimity when we get to the end of the path. It means that we can can have tastes of all of these, all of these factors. We can have taste of the equanimity here and now. So so what does that mean and, and how is that really possible for us? But I think it's good to hold it as both the, um, the path that we practice with the equanimity, but also it is one way of describing the goal. I seem to find myself talking a lot about equanimity. It seems over the years I somehow wind up back at this topic on equanimity again and again. And 
I said to, I said to uh, Gil, I said, boy, I must really need it, you know, because I, I seem to have to teach it a lot. And, and Gil has a nice way of reframing things. And he said, well, maybe it's because you really resonate with equanimity. <laughs> you know? Maybe it's uh, something that, you know, you really, you really uh, appreciate and enjoy about the factor of equanimity. And when I was reflecting on, you know, I was, Glad he said that. Thank you. You know, it's a better frame. Um, <laughs> you know, I've got so many issues. I really need to work with this, this a lot. But but when I was really really when I was reflecting on that, I became aware of how much this really has been my practice. As, some, as Gil was saying earlier about how when we work work with these factors, we may look at the ones that. Um, are absent, or maybe the ones that are more present, you know, really start to get to know these factors. And I think this is really the factor that has been primary for me, working with equanimity. And I'll talk a bit about that and, and how, um, how, that, how I've worked with it and how it's come to be in that way. First, what is equanimity? Equanimity is genuinely uh, uh, called um, the stillness. The the translation I like is the stillness of the unmoving mind. The stillness of the unmoving mind, which really points to the mind that is free of reactivity, a mind that is not caught in the movements of for and against. Because that's what moves. The mind moves towards what it wants and rejects what it doesn't want. And there can be many degrees of intensity along that continuum. Really being caught in what we want. To the point where we're really completely bound up in that desire, lust, addiction, compulsion. Or the opposite, where we're in rejection and anger and aversion and hate. Um, And those are very, very unpleasant mind states. Sometimes we call them hell realms. You know, the hell realms that we enter into because they're so painful at those extreme ends. And sometimes when we're caught in the extremes of those, there's not much awareness or wisdom that's available to help ourselves and really be caught. So until there is some awareness or wisdom that can look and see what's happening, I'm not sure that we really can get free. It seems that the, the awareness which brings forth the wisdom and the understanding, the clarity, is what frees us. It's the way, it's the pathway to the freedom because when we're really bound up, it seems that, that the awareness, as Eugene was speaking about, gets contracted in what's called that ego state or that self, sense of self. And there's not much fluidity, there's not much space, there's not much movement. It's almost like there's one metaphor, it's like when the mind is fixated in that way, it's like ice, Uh, water that's got frozen in ice. And then it's said that it's the love or the compassion that begins to melt that ice, and then it's back into its watery, fluid flow again. But we can feel that, we can feel that kind of constriction and that contraction when we get caught in those difficult mind states of reaction, reactivity. So what we're interested in is finding what helps to bring that release, 
that release of those fixations, those habits, those contractions, those difficult states of mind, so that we can begin to feel some freedom in our mind, in our heart, in our being. This is from the third Zen patriarch. I think Eugene almost read it, but since he didn't, I get to read it. (laughs) Verses on the faith mind. And it said this third Zen patriarch from... um, 6th century A.D. China, um, only, there's only a few uh, words that were written down from this, this patriarch, a uh, few stanzas of words, and um, they were very pithy. And here's uh, one stanza. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Right? Great. Great line, right? Start right there. Great reflection. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attached love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. So I like this very much because he's pointing directly to the source of the problem. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. And that's really, in our practice, what we pay attention to. And I I spoke one morning about the paying attention to what's called the Vedana, the the valence of our experience, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the in-between experience because that's where it all starts to arise from. This is what we can see in our practice. When something is unpleasant, it's not so easy just to stay present with it in an equanimous way. When we don't get into some kind of struggle or fight or desire or wanting it to be different, wanting it to be a certain way, we just see the arising of that condition of that mind state, and then how we can easily begin to enter into it and be bound up in it. And unless we bring the awareness along, and unless we bring some wisdom along, some wisdom that understands what's happening, we easily get pulled right in, and we may be in it for some time. Or the opposite, around the pleasant, how we can also get pulled right into that and then get fixated on it and begin to get very attached to it and then want to manipulate and control our experiences so they're more pleasant than less pleasant and just get into that whole swirl of manipulation and control and wanting and not wanting. This moves us away from the stillness of the unmoving mind. The swirl, the swirl of the mind... But the interesting thing is, you know, we say, well, let it go, right? Let go. We talk about letting go in this practice. But we can't actually let go. And, and it's something that I like to kind of point out, because we can give ourselves a hard time for not letting go. Why am I still caught up in this? Why is this still happening? I've been practicing for so many years, and look at me. I'm a mess. Right? Why can't I let go? Well, we have situations that are difficult in our life, and we, we still get caught up in it, and you know, upset, and you know, a lot of difficulties, and why can't I let go? Letting go is a byproduct of wisdom and understanding that arises from awareness and clear seeing. 
once we actually see what's happening, we let go. <laughs> it's like it, 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 it happens naturally. So, so, so what, what needs to arise, which can only happen through our awareness and through paying attention and staying in contact with, 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 with what's happening moment to moment, then wisdom can arise and we can see the causes and conditions and what, what makes what happen. And then we can let go. It's like, yeah, well, why would I hang on to that when I know better? So it's, I think it's very, so we want to we wanna really understand the importance of the awareness wisdom, and the place of that, because otherwise we can really undermine ourselves and give ourselves a real hard time for where we're at. But if we continue to put our attention somewhere that's actually going to continue to cultivate our understanding and our awareness, then we can make some progress along the way. Through this wisdom, equanimity is a wisdom factor. Equanimity comes about through the development of wisdom. And so, so through the understanding of these causes and conditions, we can begin to see what brings about the difficulty in our life and then begin to transform, to shift some of the difficulties that we're experiencing. In a way, we're taking the energy of those difficult mind states and we want to turn them or to transmute them into the energy that's going to bring about the good or that's going to bring about something that's more heartful or skillful or beneficial for ourselves and for other people. Because there's a lot of energy bound up in those difficult mind states of anger and desire and confusion. I mean, we can, you can even feel it in a way when we get very tight and constricted, there's a lot of energy bouncing around in there. Maybe, maybe if we're more of an anger type, we might be able to resonate with the energy that gets bound up in the anger. But if we're maybe more of a desire type, a lusting type, maybe we'll feel that energy that gets bound up in that. With a confused type, it's a little bit more amorphous. You know, a little bit more... <laughs> like, you're not really sure what's going on. You know? <laughs> like, what? Is this... Am I angry? Am I... You know, what is... You know, it's a little bit more... You know, there's still a lot of energy there. I came across this um, article um, that I, I was very impressed by this uh, man, Charles Blow, who's an Afri- uh, African-American journalist for the New York Times. And he was writing about something that happened, and it was such a good example of, the tr- of how he was transforming this, this energy, this, this anger that he was feeling about something that was happening. And he said... Um, Um, he said, I've come to the conclusion that anger is the wrong reaction. Anger provides too low a return on investment. It consumes a tremendous amount of energy and yields little progress, which I think is very astute. So this is what happened. There was an event that made him very upset, very angry. And... What happened, it was about uh, three years ago, 2010, on Martin Luther King's 47th anniversary of his I Have a Dream speech, when a conservative right-wing politician wanted to hold a a political rally at the same site where Martin Luther King gave his speech on the same day at the National Mall. And he said, this is what he, he wrote in the New York Times, he said, Swaddling his movement in the cloth of the civil rights movement and comparing his Tea Party movement to the civil rights movement is insulting. What would be more helpful is if each of us take the opportunity to listen to the I Have a Dream speech once more and recommit ourselves to the nobility of righteous pursuits. And I was so impressed by that. 
you know, rather than just dwelling on his anger and dwelling on what this person was engaged in and, and how that felt so insulting to him, he was actually taking that energy and turning it around and, and being creative with it, offering a solution, something to do with that, which is let's listen to the speech rather than using this as an opportunity for some, for some political gain. And in that way, begin to recommit ourselves to the nobility of righteous pursuits. And I so appreciated how he was really able to see the limitation in that, in that case of his anger. And not only that it was limited, but that it had energy, that there's energy that can be used in the midst of that. And I think it's really informative for us in our practice when we pay attention. And for us, we have this practice of pausing, just stopping for a moment rather than just getting pulled into the reactivity or pulled into the mind state. Stopping for a moment, pausing, breathing, connecting, feeling. We've been talking about the full recognition of the experience, the the full feeling of the experience. And then the, the relax, relax, release, relax, release. Because that energy, the energy of anger and desire, so easily wants to be, it wants to be released, it wants to be discharged. But when there isn't awareness and wisdom with it, it can get discharged in ways that cause a great deal of suffering in this world. And we know that. We witness it in so many ways, either personally or collectively. That's the, that's the energy. One of the ways to understand and understand how that, how that collects, how that accumulates within our, within our experience, within our, within our mind, our body, and how we can begin to uh, understand, to, to uh, transmute that energy for, for the good, for something that's beneficial, for something that's wholesome and going to make a difference for ourselves and for this world. But it takes, a, 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 it takes a re- the willingness to reflect. It takes the willingness to say, I want to understand this. I want to understand what's happening in my mind, in my heart, in my being. and I want to know what's giving rise to this pain. Because in these teachings, it said there's an end to it. We can bring an end to it. Another, another story from Ajahn Sumedho, one of our elders, he tells wonderful stories, particularly stories about him and his practice and his relationship to his teacher, Ajahn Chah. And he really brings forth the, the practice, I think, in a very real and alive way for us. This is one of the things that happened for him. And he's talking about his, the learning, the learning experience of the practice, the wisdom that we are gaining through the uh, efforts of our practice. He says, Another experience I learned from was the custom of washing the feet of the senior monks when they returned from the alms round. After they walked barefoot through the villages and rice paddies, their feet would be muddy. There there were foot baths outside the dining hall. When Ajahn Chah would come, all the monks, maybe 20 or 30 of them, would rush out and wash Ajahn Chah's feet. When I first saw this, I thought, I'm not going to do that. Not me. Then the next day, 30 monks rushed out as soon as Ajahn Chah appeared and washed his feet. And I thought, what a stupid thing to be doing. 30 monks washing one man's feet? I'm not going to do that. And the day after that, the reaction became even more violent. Thirty monks rushed out, washed Ajahn Chah's feet, and, and he thought, that really angered me. I'm fed up with it. 
I just feel that is the most stupid thing I've ever seen. (laughs) 30 men going out to wash one man's feet? He probably thinks he deserves it, you know? It's really building up his ego. He probably got an enormous ego having so many people wash his feet every day. I'll never do that. So he's just going on and on. You know, this is what we do, right? You know, the, we call it papancha. There's this wonderful word in the teachings, papancha. It's the proliferation of thought. Something begins to happen, and we just keep thinking about it and complaining about it and you know, wanting to, I'm never going to do that. I was be- he said, I was beginning to build up a strong reaction, an overreaction. I would sit there really feeling miserable and angry, I'd look at the monks and I'd think, they all look stupid to me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. But then I started listening. Aha. I started listening and I thought, this is really an unpleasant frame of mind to be in. <laughs> is it anything to get upset about? They haven't made me do it. It's all right. There's nothing wrong with 30 men washing one man's feet. It's not immoral. It's not bad behavior. And maybe they enjoy it. Maybe they want to do it. Maybe it's all right to do that. Maybe I should do it. (laughs) So the next morning, 31 monks ran out (laughs) and washed Ajahn Chah's feet. There was no problem after that. It felt really good. That nasty thing in me had stopped. That nasty thing in me had stopped. It's nothing about Ajahn Chah's feet or the the monks washing the feet, you know. It was nothing about really what was going on. I love how he says that nasty thing in me had stopped. And so what, he's, what, he, what he says and what, what our practice is about is can we keep embracing, keep including, keep reflecting on even the painful aspect, even the difficult aspect, to include the dukkha. Because again, without the reflection, without the awareness, without the interest, in this case the investigation, the curiosity and some energy to do that, he's not going to have the insight, he's not going to have the recognition about what's really going on. So this this invitation, this invitation to include, not just to turn towards the pleasure and then suppress and deny that which is unpleasant, indulging and dwelling in the pleasant and suppressing, rejecting the unpleasant, but the sense of inclusion, embracing, opening to. And this is really what helps us learn how to bear the, the, the immensity of our experience, the fullness of our experience, when we can see how we are setting up the for and against, for and against, liking, disliking, the movement of the mind. And as we come more into the awareness, into the interest, into the curiosity and the energy, then the mind actually starts to becoming, become more still, right in the middle of the experience, whatever it is. Whether it's strong desire or whether it's strong anger and, and, and hate, if there's some access to the factors, awareness and curiosity, then, then the mind starts to settle. The mind starts to distill, I think was one of the lovely words that Eugene used. Settle and distill. And then the other factors start to become available. A little bit of joy in the investigation. The, the calming begins to come a little bit... Uh, uh, more, um, um, there's a, I was going to go for the other. So, so joy and the calm, and then the, and then some equanimity. Uh, 
the concentration, the samadhi starts to come, the distilling, and then the equanimity. Just, it doesn't matter what the, what's happening. It doesn't matter what the conditions are. It's all, uh, Ajahn, Ajahn um, Amaro, Ajahn Amaro, one of the other wonderful monks, he used to call that accessing the fairy dust in the experience the fairy dust, and whatever it is that's occurring starts to, I just have the image of the, of the snowball, you know, within the crystal, the, the crystal that, you know, you shake up at Christmas and the snow falls and then, you know, it all settles if you don't keep shaking up the ball. And then all the snow is just settled nicely on the bottom of the crystal ball. That's like, that's our, that's the awareness. Hmm. Just that, like the fairy dust in our practice. It doesn't matter what's happening. I was, when I was reflecting on this equanimity today, I was remembering an incident that happened to me some years ago because my equanimity practice really happened when I was going to India, which I went to for many, many years uh, every winter. I was teaching there as well and working deeply on my practice at the same time because India can really be such a stirring place because everything's out. Birth, aging, sickness, and death is right in front of your eyes. There's nothing hidden there. And I hadn't really been out of the country very much before I went to India. So uh, I was a bit startled by all of that and had a lot of reaction to a lot of that and lots of aversion, really, really difficult to stay, to stay present and uh, open to all the things that I was seeing and I was engaging in. So I took on the practice of equanimity using a particular phrase of no matter how much I wish for things to be otherwise... Things are as they are. Because I could feel how much I wished for things to be otherwise. I didn't want to see so many people suffering in the way they were. And my mind just kept going to the contact of seeing all of the, all of the pain and that desire for that not to be there. And I could, so I would say, no matter how much I might wish for this to be otherwise, this is how it is so that I could come more and more to a place of some acceptance, so that I could even begin to be present, so I could begin to even engage in some kind of uh, constructive or helpful way, because I was so often in my aversion and my uh, rejection and and suppressing uh, what was actually happening and cutting off from my feelings, just shutting off because I couldn't handle a lot of it. So I worked really hard with this, with this practice, seeing if I could come to some place of presence and acceptance with, within myself uh, so I could at least stand in, a, in some presence. And some years after, I was, I was there for about 15 years, um, some, some years after I was getting a little more easy for me to be there, I was able to be a little bit more present after some years, um, a friend of mine who went to uh, India a lot uh, really wanted me just to start going into the villages and see more of what was happening in India. So we were in South, South India together, and she had a friend who was a doctor at a hospital, an Indian hospital. And I was always like, I don't want to go to an Indian hospital. Um, one of my, you know, aversion. Um, uh, and... Um, she, she, wanted me, she wanted me to come along with her. So one evening I said, okay, I'm going to go. And this woman was a physician in the neonatal unit. And so we went up to the department. It was dark and there's the, 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 the lights aren't so bright in um, India. There's a lot of generators and you know, keeping the electric, electricity going. And um, I went up to the department and we were walking. There were all these, these babies in these little um, units, these plastic units, sort of makeshift um, units uh, hooked up to help them um, survive. These were all babies that were really on the edge, and there were probably about 20 in this department. 
And I was walking around and, you know, I could feel that I was getting weaker and, you know, it was harder for me to stay present and I was just feeling the sort of the, like the, the pain of this, this very difficult uh, life and death situation of these little tiny babies. And, um, and then I heard, I understood that in the waiting room were a lot of the mothers, young Indian mothers, who... Um, really um, had to be there because in Indian culture, if, if something happens to your baby, and especially in the, in the lower caste and some of the poor families, if your baby, if your baby dies, you get, you get cast out of the family. It's like a bad omen. It's like it's, uh, something's wrong with you if your baby dies. And these, these young mothers would get cast out into the um, into the into the larger community, and they were sitting in the waiting room, so so waiting to see what would happen with their babies. And so I'm getting all this download of this information, and I'm seeing the young mothers in the waiting room, and they're in distress, and then the babies, and I was pretty much losing it. I was just I just could hardly keep it together. And I had been practicing for some, some years, and so in the past I might have had a big superego judgment about you've been practicing for a long time, you're a teacher for heaven's sakes, you know, get it together, you know, pull it together, what's wrong with you? You know, and all these, you know, we can really idealize our practice too, you know, I'm supposed to be Kuan Yin, you know, and have compassion for all living beings, you know, and, you know, just shine my healing light and, you know, heal, heal all the babies in the room, you know, <laughs> if I was actually, if my practice was really strong, you know, I could just, you know, just, you know, go around with my wand and... You know, it's just like we just get so idealized. And here I was just, you know, practically fainting. <laughs> so I went, I had been practicing a lot of equanimity and a lot of compassion. So I went into one of the, the, the offices there and I just sat down and started to weep. And I just cried and cried and cried. And I just felt all this compassion. It's like the, my heart of compassion just opened up and I felt all this compassion for myself in the condition that I was in and that I had even taken the risk of coming in to this department to begin with, knowing how kind of fragile and vulnerable I am around these things. And all this really, all this love and compassion for myself. And then the compassion just went out to all the mothers in the room and the the babies who were uh, suffering on the edge of life and death. And the, the, the physician who was completely overwhelmed in her job because it was like one doctor, you know, for all this whole, this whole department. And it was just such a revelation a revelation that by allowing myself to be right where I was, just to stay there, to stay, I had the capacity to be able to stay present with my pain, with my sorrow, and with the sorrow of the whole situation, and feel the deep compassion start to bubble up, which then also allowed me to feel the, the grace, really, that these babies were in the hospital, that there was a physician, you know, and, and there was a chance for their... I mean, it's just the opening of the understanding and the awareness and the compassion, my heart. And it was really a moment, what I can say was uh, probably a, quite a revelation, quite a realization, quite an awakening moment, because I wouldn't have expected that. I would have expected that perhaps I would have just <laughs> kept kind of going down the drain of that, you know, pain and sorrow and despair and hopelessness and helplessness. But by really staying right there, the present and the awareness and the trust in the practice and the practices and the accumulation of my practice as well, that I could stay there and sit there, this amazing opening occurred. And it wasn't that I necessarily, you know, was able then to just kind of stand up and, you know, go into the room and then, you know, uh, heal (laughs) everybody, (laughs) you know, but I was really present.
present. I was really present. I was really present with myself and, and what was happening in a, in, in, in a real way. Really facing reality. Facing reality for me, for the mothers, for the doctor, for the babies, for my friend. It's really, really quite a, a wonderful, wonderful experience that has continued to inform me for a very, very long time. I think it's given me a tremendous amount of faith and trust in the teachings, in the practice of what this is really about and what, what it really means to begin to transmute or transform these energies. Um, in this case, that energy of, um, of just some despair and, and uh, sorrow and um, al- almost kind of the helplessness that was starting to come and then to sit right in the middle of it just to sit right in the middle of it and have enough faith and trust to do that. And then something is possible because of the trust and awareness, the trust in the Dharma, the trust in the teachings, the trust in the possibility of of what this is about, the the capacity of my own Buddha nature, my own nature, that something can transform here. So I think the question really is, how do we keep our heart open in the midst of all of this? You know, as even as we go out, we go back into our life, you know, everybody has something you know, everybody has something that they're dealing with at some level. You know, something that, you know, many of us, you know, sometimes it's, it's secret. You know, we can, we can have a certain persona and, you know, certain life and way we engage in our life. But there's, for many of us, there's something that is very, very difficult and very, very troubling that maybe we don't even really talk much about or many people don't even know much about. But it's really painful and really difficult. And it's something that we have to bring our practice to, bring our attention to. For me, I, I have a nephew who I've been nurturing, an uh, older nephew in the 30s, who's been really on the edge. Very, very difficult, very difficult life. And, and in and out of jail, in and out of drugs, and been, was doing really well for the last year. And then this week, while I was here on retreat, got a call back in jail, back with the drugs. You know? And just to, just to feel and just to you know, kind of sense and feel the, my own pain, my own sorrow around that. You know? And be able to hold that, to open that, and not think... Some, that it shouldn't be here or that something's wrong, that I'm feeling the, the sorrow, that I'm feeling the disappointment, that I'm feeling the, the loss again, the grief. It's that's what's here. That's what's here. And our practice, I, how, our practice is how do we hold that? How do we open to it? Because it's, it's not that we have to look very far. None of us have to look very far for the painful aspect of life. But as we start to understand more and more about this, where is the joy? Where is the tranquility? Where is the the samadhi and the equanimity? It's right in the middle of the conditions. As we bring our awareness there, as we bring our curiosity and our energy there, then the mind begins to settle begins to settle as we come in contact with the reality, with reality, and and meet that reality. And it may not be that we feel settled, necessarily. There may be a lot of emotion and a lot of restlessness or a lot of agitation. But even in the midst of that, another opportunity, another opportunity to feel my body, feel the sensation, feel what's here, Stay present with it. Stay present with it. We put our trust in the awareness and to see if we cannot cut off, not cut off 
not to push things away behind the screen. There's this wonderful cartoon that I love. This, of this, uh, there's a picture of this monk in his robes looking out over this very serene landscape of the sun setting and palm trees and the lake. And, he's, and you see the, the cartoons seeing the back of the monk looking out over this beautiful, serene uh, landscape. But then what you see behind the monk in the cartoon is this, um, is this screen that also is painted with the landscape. And the, and, but behind the screen is just this pile of junk. So, so that that's, he's completely protected from that whole pile of junk. But it's right there in the room, you know, but he's looking the other way. <laughs> and so sometimes that's what we do. We just, you know, it's like we, we have all of these, you know, pretty things all around us, but the, you know, the junk's kind of <laughs> in, the, in the closet of our own mind. And we're bringing, we're opening the door. We're opening the door to see if we can open to all of it, without collapsing into the despair and into the hopelessness. And at the same time, opening to the joy, opening to the joy without falling into grasping and attachment. So opening to the pain, opening to the joy, opening to all conditions, all conditions the fullness of experience. That's, I think, our practice. And there, learning to bear, bear our life in some ways, bear life. Increase our capacity for life. To be more present. To be more here. Because being here isn't so easy, you know? We like the word here, <laughs> be here, or we like just, <laughs> you know, just feeling, just thinking. But it's not so easy, right? It's not so easy because we are in this life. Not, it's a challenging life to be in a body, to have a mind, to get old, to get sick, to die, to have our loved ones get old and sick and die. How do we keep our heart open? How do we keep our heart open to all this? This is John O'Donohue, this wonderful poet. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. Because it is a surprise, isn't it? It's always a surprise. If we're really present, if we're really here, we don't know what's going to happen next. Carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. And as we open and feel that openness, we feel our vulnerability, we feel our fragility, we feel the tremulousness of our beingness. And that's natural. That's what's here. This is uh, my teacher, Hamid Ali. He says, Then all of our feelings and sensations appear as if they were leaves that are just being born. Very delicate, very soft, but very alive and very fresh. The heart is awake and sensing with intimacy the unfolding of its own nature. The heart is awake and sensing with intimacy the unfolding of its own nature. 
So our practice, you might say our, our refuge, is this trust in awareness. Trust in awareness, which, which then becomes the conduit for the awakening of wisdom, the awakening of compassion, which we call the awakening of the heart, the heart-mind. The mind falls into the heart, the heart opens, the mind opens. There's no difference between mind and heart. Heartfulness, mindfulness, bodyfulness, they all collapse into one, the concentric (laughs) samadhi. This is what's available for us. Let's just take a moment and sit together. And maybe just for the moment of silence. See what happens as you drop in this equanimity phrase. Things are as they are. Things are as they are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.